Amen. You guys may be seated. And just by way of correction, our assurance of pardon is not in Isaiah, but in Psalm 62, verse 2, if you want to notate that. Otherwise, you'll be looking for days. Uh, well, if you have been journeying with us over the, uh, the course of the summer, um, we have just finished, just concluded last week, uh, working through uh, various passages of Scripture, uh, various doctrines contained in the Bible. And as we've been doing that, uh, we have been looking at how our uh, statement of faith, the 1689 Confession of Faith, um, uh, summarizes those particular uh, statements of faith. And what I'm going to do, at the risk of being redundant over the next couple of weeks, is uh, though we have, uh, hopefully, by God's grace, have seen the philosophy, that is how we should function in light of our theology, our confession, uh, while we've seen that, I hope, over the course of this summer, uh, I want to give us just a few weeks uh, to pay even more attention to that because, uh, and I've said this before, uh, our theology, no matter how good, uh, doesn't matter one bit if it stays in the academies, right? It doesn't matter one bit if it's theoretical. It, it, it matters what it looks like when the rubber meets the road. And so we want to be Christians whose theology meets it's the rubber, of the ro- rubber on the road. And so, um, so I'm going to kind of work through that over the next couple of weeks specifically. Uh, but uh, every Lord's Day when we come, uh, we should be asking ourselves the question, uh, what does God in Christ require of me as a Christian? And, uh, and so we, we want to be thinking through that, and we want to labor as believers in light of the finished work of Christ. We're not laboring to earn God's favor. We're not laboring uh, to, to have a right standing with Jesus. We're laboring from a right standard. Uh, we're laboring uh, from the fact that God in Christ has made us right. We're laboring for the fact that he's, he's put us right, that we're on a firm foundation, and we're laboring in light of the authority of uh, Christ Jesus, who is eternally bodily resurrected from the dead and forever so. And we do so with the hope that, uh, as we saw last week, uh, we too will resurrect from the dead uh, as those in Christ to eternal life. And so this morning in this little brief series is really called Building the Church. And, and while this uh, should ap- apply universally to, um, to all churches, uh, we want to zoom in even closer and say, uh, how are we, uh, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, building uh, God's church uh, here? How is the Lord building up Deer Park fellowship, and and what does that look like for us, and how are we to be effective ambassadors for Christ? And so we're going to be working through all of those in the coming weeks. And uh, in this, like many of the sermons over the course of this summer, is a is a bit of a biblical survey, and these next few weeks will be that before we get into the book of 1 Timothy, where we're just going to work verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy. But allow me to pray, and then we're going to just jump right in, and I've got three uh, points for you this morning, just three points, and um, but don't worry, there's like 40 sub-points, so um, we'll get out in time. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of singing and reminding ourselves through melody of, of, you, of just your glorious grace, God, and reminding each other um, that, uh, that you reign, and, uh, and Lord, we have countless reasons indeed to sing uh, to you. And so uh, bless our time in the Word. Uh, help us, again, by your Spirit to uh, understand it, Lord, to apply it to our lives so that we may 
uh, walk in the light in accordance with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you're taking notes, the, the first, just point number one uh, uh, and and the, the title of this sermon is Building the Church Through a Commitment to uh, uh, the Lord's Day, through a commitment uh, specifically to the gathering uh, of the Lord's Day. Uh, but if you're taking notes, you can write this. God has called us to gather regularly on the Lord's Day. God's called us to gather regularly on the Lord's Day, and in just a, uh, a couple of passages for us, and these aren't the only passages that we can pull this from, but these are just three passages that I wanted us as a church family uh, to see when we consider <clears throat> that God really does expect us to meet regularly each and every Lord's Day, each and every Sunday. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty five is perhaps one of the more well-known passages as it relates to this. Uh, the preacher uh, to the Hebraic church, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then we see in Acts, in Acts documents the spread of the early church, the first century church. We see Luke, who was a physician, he documented this uh, as it related to Paul's ministry. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And if you know that story, he talked so long, uh, someone died. Um, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the first two verses is now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Uh, we should reg- regularly gather as God's church. Uh, in the, the Hebrews passage here, we, we see the, the preacher to the Hebrews, who, who, who we'll consider later this morning, we see him charge this, uh, this church that, that was predominantly Jewish, this Jewish church, and consequently, because God by His Holy Spirit has preserved His Word uh, for us today, uh, He charges them, He charges us to not neglect to meet together that was a habit that was already formed by some, even in the first century uh, church, right? Even not that long after the death, um, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, there already began to be some believers neglecting meeting regularly together. Now, notice he doesn't say, don't neglect to meet together unless things aren't safe or Don't neglect to meet together unless you schedule things that take priority over meeting, or don't neglect to meet together unless you don't feel like it. He says, do not neglect to meet. We're to meet and we're to worship together regularly. We're to do that regularly. And the reason we do this, we do it to the glory of God primarily, we, we meet together regularly for the glory of God, and, and we meet, even according to this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 here, we meet it as a, as a way by which, not the only way, but as a way by which we per- persevere 
as that great day, right, that, that, that uh, we, we spoke of last week, but as the, that is referenced here in Hebrews chapter 10, as that great day draws near. As, as a part of our regularly gathering together, we see each other, right? we interact with each other, and in, uh, and in doing this, we remind each other that, that King Jesus is coming back to eventually make all things new. Right? We, we remind each other of fixed, beautiful, glorious gospel realities when we come together. We remind each other of our union with Christ and our uh, familial connection together uh, with one another because we're a people that are, are in Christ. And this happens only in person. It happens only in person, not, not as isolated Christians, not as Christians in our home. This happens when we meet together. We encourage one another, and we bring glory to our triune God when we meet together. Now, look back at our Acts passage. What else do we see surrounding this habit of gathering? We see in Acts 20, verse 7, again, that habit that I was speaking to. We see the saints, after the the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Christ and the ascension to Christ to the right hand of the Father, we see them gathering uh, on the first day of the week known as Sunday. This first day of the week is also in the Bible known as the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verse 10. Now, now you've heard me say this before, but why the Lord's Day? Why the Lord's Day? What what did Sunday, the first day, or when did Sunday, rather, when did the first day of the week become the Christian Sabbath? When did it replace um, Saturday? It signifies, we meet here, our meeting here, our gathering here signifies the fact that Christ really did rise from the dead. In Genesis, we we see our triune God rest on Saturday uh, after He had finished creating everything, and He set this pattern for His people, distinctly His people, for their good, not... Uh, not just His glory, but when we, when we bring glory to God, we should always remember that bringing glory to God is ultimately for our own good. But we see this pattern of rest in Genesis that the Lord set aside. We see it summarized in the Ten Commandments, this expectation that we cease from our labors, our recreations, and we devote a day uh, to the worship and glory of God, to the meeting together for acts of mercy, things of that nature. But in the New Testament, we see the res- that the resurrection of Christ it, uh, was the inauguration of new creation, right? So in the Old Testament, we see God rest on Saturday after He had finished creating all things by the Word of His power, and then we see the Word incarnated, right? The Word in flesh, Christ Jesus, who lived, died, and bodily resurrected, right? We see that since the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus, we see that the saints gathered on Sunday, which was the day that Christ Jesus resurrected, to celebrate the inauguration of new creation, right? We, those of us in Christ, are new creatures in Christ. And this world is waking up to that reality. We looked at last week how all creation groans in anticipation for that ultimate definitive renewal. And every Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we're celebrating a resurrection Sunday. This isn't every Sunday is Easter Sunday, 
Right? Every Sunday is Easter Sunday for those of us that are Christians because every Sunday we come and our very coming on Sunday, the first day of the week, is because Christ rose from the dead. And on that day, right in our Acts passage here, we see Paul preaching right? and we see the breaking of bread, which I think... Uh, yeah, I think is the Lord's Supper. I think a, a strong case can be made that he's referring to that there. And then it, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, again, I won't read it, I won't read it again to you, but those first two verses, we, we see that the church was to regularly take offerings or that that was the day in which they took offerings. Right? Paul gives this instruction to both the Corinthians and the Galatians. In essence, he tells them, to take the collection for the propagation of the gospel when they're regularly gathered. He literally says on the first day of every week. Again, this was, this was a habit that was already established. God's church has a history of regularly gathering each and every Lord's Day. And in light of, of, of the theological foundations that we've covered over the summer... Deer Park Fellowship is to be a church that's committed to gathering. We're to be a church committed together. We're going together. We're going to gather when it's favorable in our culture together, and we're going to gather when it's not favorable in our culture together. We're going to gather just as the church has gathered for the last 2,000 plus years, and as we gather, we're going to trust and rest in the Lord knowing that God's church has a this, this rich um, history of the gospel and his kingdom being promoted by Christians with a commitment of being together. And I believe that God's plan, and we'll, again, we'll see this in the coming weeks, but I believe God's plan as it relates to the Great Commission will be successful by Christians who promote that Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Secondly, The means of grace is where God primarily grows you and preserves you. The means of grace is where God primarily grows you and preserves you. God, He he grows us in many different ways, but He promises to grow us. Again, and this all relates to the Lord's Day this morning, but He promises to grow us each and every Lord's Day through what's called the ordinary means of grace. Of grace. These ordinary means of grace are word, prayer, sacrament. Right? Word, prayer, sacrament. Word, prayer, ordinance, uh, if you like. Right? That, this is how God grows us primarily. Again, it's not the only way that He grows us, but this is the way that He promises to grow us. If you want to grow as a Christian, this is God's growth plan for you. This is His growth plan for you, and, and His means... Right, if this is the means by which he grows you, there's also a timetable in which he does it as well that we should sovereignly submit to. There's no rushing past all of this. There's no fast-track plan that we can upgrade to. There's nothing that we need to do to spruce this sort of thing up. God will grow you as you faithfully and consistently engage with the means that he's provided for you in the way that he's prescribed them for you. And so not only does God have a particular primary means by which he grows us as Christians, 
but there's a way in which we engage with those means, and that is, again, primarily through the Lord's Day. So let's, let's just briefly look at those means. First is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. We read the Word of God. The Word of God is to be preached, and we sing God's Word. We read God's Word. We preach God's Word. We sing God's Word. Let's look at just the reading and the preaching portion. I'll just commend a passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. We see the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, young pastor at the church of Ephesus, uh, um, uh, a church with uh, loads of problems, and we see Paul commending perseverance, faithfulness. Uh, but in, in all the different problems... That, that we're going on, and again, we're going to see this over the course of our series in the book of 1 Timothy, but with all the issues that were going on at Ephesus, and with all the cultural and societal stuff going on, God prescribed his means of grace to address them. That's what he prescribed in order to remedy and address all of these different various situations. And so, so when we look at what's going on in our culture and we're like, we need to be doing this or we need to be saying this or we need to be talking about that or, man, I, I get that we should pray. I get that we should read God's word. I get that we should say, I get all that. Yeah, that's great. But we really got to do something about this. I heard one guy who was the president of a Christian university at one point, which uh, motto was about training and developing Christians, had the audacity on a public news station to say, we get that, that God essentially has a plan by which he grows things, but we need to table theology and save our country first. That's an issue when we begin to think that way. That's an issue when we begin to think that the things that God has prescribed for us and in his word tells us is the very thing that will bring the nations to him, the nations to obedience. We, we begin to look at that and say, I get what it says, but I just don't feel like that's really going to do the trick. That's an issue. That's an issue. We submit to God's means, we submit to God's timetable for our own development of Christian growth, and again, for the propagation of the gospel, which in Matthew chapter 28 doesn't just mean evangelism, it means that he will teach the nations to obey him, everything that he says. So we see the word of God read, the word of God preached, we see the word of God in singing. So reading and preaching, 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Some translations say sound doctrine. I like that a little bit better because it's clear. But he says, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And Paul charges Timothy to devote himself as a pastor to the, the public reading of Scripture. When we're gathered all together, he instructs him uh, to, to exhort the Scripture, right, which, is, which is preaching. And through this task of preaching, there's an element of teaching sound doctrine. There's an element there of teaching sound doctrine. Again, this was done each Lord's Day, and it certainly bled over into the lives of, of the individuals that were a part of Ephesus. The reason why the culture was in such opposition to the church of Ephesus and churches like we see all throughout the New Testament is because these very means of grace produce a change in the people that submit themselves to them, which in turn rattles the culture. 
It rattles the culture. You've heard me say this before, but our faith should collide with the culture. We're not building some sort of... Um, uh, we're not Amish, if I can put it that way. We're not building and, 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 and putting ourselves in some sort of ulterior society. We're to collide with the culture. And the best way to be equipped to do that in a way that honors God, in a way that really promotes change, is through us submitting ourselves in this way. Right, so this is done each Lord's Day. And a primary task for a pastor is to submit himself to the study and to the preaching of the word so that as a result, and we see Paul say this elsewhere, as a result of that, God will produce a fully furnished man, woman, fully equipped man, woman, fully equipped child of God, 2 Timothy three seventeen. And our services each Lord's Day should center around this very means of grace because when the Word of God is rightly divided, we can trust it and we can submit our lives to it. So a major task here at Deer Park is that we will normatively preach expositionally, which means that our pulpit will work verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we will, by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit living in us, seek to conform more into the image of Christ, having submitted ourselves, having spent time in God's Word and His whole counsel. And again, God really does grow us in this. And while we welcome unbelievers to our service each Lord's Day, if you are not a Christian here, I'm so happy that you're here. The Christians in this room are so happy that you're here. And while we welcome you, our Lord's Day service is about Christians conforming more into the image of Christ. And I would love for you to become a Christian. But our Lord's Day service is about the glory, A, the glory of our triune God, and B, the strengthening of God's church. Right? We're conforming Sunday by Sunday, more into the image of Christ Jesus. We should be growing in maturity every week, having spent toge- time together in the Word. And, and again, that should fuel our evangelism to non-believers. But the gathering each Lord's Day is a gathering of God's church. Right? So reading and preaching, right? rightly dividing the Word of God is important. But what of singing? What of singing? Right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 Paul, here again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. I love this this bit of it. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love singing each Sunday. I love yeah, I made the comment about hearing kids sing. I love hearing kids sing to the God who created them. I love hearing us sing to the God who created us. And, and the Lord has been gracious to us in assembling just a, a great team of people to lead us in musical worship uh, that work really hard at doing that each and every Lord's Day. But singing isn't just something that we do to fill the time. It's not something that we're, we're doing as we wait to get to uh, the preaching of the Word. Right? It's an act commanded by God Himself, and it's a means by which He strengthens us and encourages us and sanctifies us. Right? Paul says that, that a way the Word of Christ dwells in us richly 
is by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, again, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So our singing is directed not only to our triune God, but we're teaching and we're admonishing. We are collectively instructing one another through singing. Interestingly enough, that that word admonish here is, is where we get the word in the Bible counsel from. That's where we get the word counsel from. We are counseling one another as we sing together each and every Lord's Day. Right? This means that we don't sing as individuals that happen to be at the same location. Right? We sing as God's body, Christ's bride, Christ's church, and our singing has a preserving quality to it. Right? We remember who our triune God is, and we ascribe to him the glory that he already has and that is due his name, and through our singing, we remember who we are in Christ Jesus, because we're so prone to forget it. We're so prone to forget it. Music was created by God. Music is a gift from God, and in the way in which he calls us to sing requires us to be together, requires us to be here. And notice the Lord says specifically we're to sing psalms. Right? This for us at Deer Park has become a, a growing conviction We've been introducing psalms each month because we think the Bible teaches us that we should be singing psalms. So we gather each Lord's Day and we sing the great doctrines of God's Word. We do so to the glory of His name. We do so for the good of one another. This is one of the ways, this is a part of that ordinary means of grace. And we're singing the right songs. The Lord grows us and He strengthens us for having done so. I don't know how many of you have had that experience of, man, you, you barely made it here. Right? Maybe there's somebody this morning that has barely made it here this morning. Right? And, and you may be foggy-minded, and you may be rid, riddled with anxiety, depression, whatever, that could just overwhelmed. And there's something about just being able to, to sing. Right? With all those emotions spilling over, be able to sing uh, doctrine in melody, correct doctrine in melody that can strengthen those wobbly knees and you leave glad that you were a part of it. Singing is important. Next is prayer. Prayer is an ordinary means of grace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, right? There's a thing. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Despair, I think, is grounded in habitual prayerlessness. I think despair is grounded in habitual prayerlessness. In fact, this passage says, do not be anxious, which is a command to repent of the sin of worry. Paul, he also puts this positively for us. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the result of that is the peace of God 
which surpasses all understanding will guard your mind will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What what our church needs, what our culture needs, is the peace of God. And the very means that fosters peace in the heart and in the mind is prayer. It's prayer. And I fear that we think, much like these other means, that we think that it's not tangible enough. And the reason it doesn't feel tangible to us is because it puts us in the seat of being truly dependent on the Lord and acknowledge how little control we actually have. And we don't often like that. We're doers. We're fixers. And the very act of prayer is an acknowledgement that God's sovereign and that we're not sovereign that God has authority and that we're helpless apart from Him. Yet the beauty is that our prayers, when they're made according to God's will, as revealed by His Word, our prayers really are effectual. They really are effectual. God really does use the prayers of His saints to accomplish His plan and His purpose for our lives. It matters. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we a prayerful church? If we take a step back and we zoom out as our gathering marked by commitment to prayer. Right? Prayer is a major theme in the Bible. The largest book in the Bible, the, book of, the collection of Psalms, is a collection of prayers. Collection of prayers that are often sang in melody, if you're familiar with them. And there's prayers for every occasion here. When we're using the Word of God, there's, there's prayers for every occasion. So at Deer Park, we need to be a church that prioritizes prayer as we gather. And notice how our service functions. We, we have a call to worship where we read God's Word, and which means we hear from God, and then we respond in praying, and we respond in singing. Right? We hear the Word of God read in our time of confession, of, uh, our confession of sin, and then we respond in prayer. And then we have uh, uh, the Word of God read in our assurance of faith. Then we respond in singing. The Word of God preached, we respond in prayer. Sacrament, which preaches in picture form the gospel, and we take the elements and we respond in prayer. We say a benediction, which is a prayer over one another using the very words of God. We have a, a time at, at, our, uh, at 4 p.m. each and every Lord's Day where, uh, where some of our members gather to pray for many of the things that you see in our worship guide, in our bulletin, we should be a church that does prioritize prayer. And then we have two sacraments, two ordinances, which are a part of the ordinary means of grace. So we have word, the word of God. Again, we have prayer. And we have sacraments. Sacraments or ordinances are baptism in the Lord's Supper. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. And just briefly, Colossians 2, verses 11 to 15 Paul again, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I'll let you read more of that on your own time, verses 13 to 15. But we come and when we... We gather together, a part of that should be that we're remembering our baptism. When we see someone baptized, we should be remembering our own baptism while we celebrate that the Lord God is, is, uh, has brought, uh, uh, has increased the number of His people. 
We celebrate baptism as the entry point into the visible church. Baptism is by no means salvific, but it is the testimony of what the Lord has done. And it's the way in which we identify with Christ in His body, the church. It's the thing that that we can look at and remember when the accuser seeks to to disqualify you from the faith and, and calls you to despair. It's one of the means you use to preach the gospel to yourself. And here Paul shows us why baptism can be such a powerful sacrament. Just a few things, even from verse 12. The first thing we see there is that our baptism, it reminds us of our union with Christ in His death and in His burial. And our baptism preaches our union with Christ. It's not the thing that, that makes our union with Christ possible. It's the picture that reminds us of our union with Christ. Secondly, it reminds us that we were spiritually raised, right? raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God. Right? We were raised spiritually. God's people were raised spiritually at the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. Again, we've talked about this extensively. And third, our baptism reminds us of the power of God. It reminds us of the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and how that means our justification was made possible. It was made possible through the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so baptism is a means of grace by which God sanctifies us. Secondly, is the Lord's Supper, and we do this each week. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat, and this is critical, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I... I I think this helps to demonstrate the necessity of regularly taking the Lord's Supper. Over the years, I've become increasingly convicted that we should take the Lord's Supper in two ways. One, we should take it when we are gathered together. Not as isolated Christians, but as the body of Christ gathered. The New Testament pattern is that believers normatively took the Lord's Supper when they were gathered. In fact, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for taking it in an unworthy manner. And I think a part of that is that they weren't waiting for the majority of the church body to, to show up before they took it. They weren't discerning the body of Christ. Secondly, what we have here in this passage of Scripture is an implied frequency. Look at Particularly, verse 26, Paul says, Often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when I see a passage like this, I ask myself, how often should I proclaim the Lord's death with God's church when I'm gathered? Should proclaim it all the time, regularly. And, and, and we're not just announcing it through preaching and praying and singing, but, but we announce the Lord's death to each other by the reminder that these elements bring to us. Right? We, we announce it um, to those who are not Christians. Our Lord died. He really died, and it's His body that this bread symbolizes. It's His blood that this wine symbolizes. And, and, and we, we declare it again to one another, saying, remember that, you, that Christ is in you, that you are in Christ. He's sufficient, right? He's the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sins, his body and his blood were sufficient to cover our past, our present, our future sins. And when we take these elements, that's the very thing that we declare, which is the sufficiency 
of Christ Jesus. And so God promises to grow us primarily through His means of grace, and those are His various means of grace. But finally, let's look at, and I'll move for time's sake, that a public commitment to Christ begins with a commitment to the public worship of God. Our public worship to Christ begins with a public commitment to the, worship, to the, a commitment to the public worship of God. Right? Again, your baptism, that is your entry point into the public assembly, but it's our consistent gathering that's the primary testimony of our commitment to Jesus. It's where the public commitment of God begins, and it's what actually sustains a public commitment to Him. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, and again, I'll move quickly for time's sake, but this is where I'm going to camp out the, just the last couple of minutes. Hebrews 13 particularly verses 12 to 15. The preacher to the Hebrews said this to the predominantly Jewish church. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, right in light of that, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. And this passage comes at the heels um, of the preacher to the Hebrews reminding this Jewish church of all of those that persevered in their public commitment to the Lord. And the sermon, if you're familiar with that, it's Hebrews chapter 11 there, but the sermon culminates in encouraging this church to follow not, not just in those shoes of the people that he described in Hebrews 11, but in this passage to follow the very example of their Savior. And what is significant to me about this passage is that, again, this was a largely Jewish church, and before they came, became Christians, they probably lived a pretty calm and uneventful life. Right? They, they were welcomed in the synagogue and thus largely accepted in the broader Jewish culture, which was the dominant culture of the time. They probably made decent enough wages. And even though it doesn't exactly parallel, they were, this church was probably made up primarily of like blue-collar sort of people. Right? But, but Christ came, and He wrecked the comfort and the safety of their lives. All of a sudden, they were confessing that Jesus is the eternal God. All of a sudden, they were confessing that Christ came to seek and save the lost, and they, as originally professing Jews, were professing now that they were amongst those that were lost and needed to be saved. Right? The, the teachings of the apostles here were seen as authoritative and as from God. They took the Lord's Supper, which again proclaimed Christ's death. They prayed to the Father by the Spirit in the name and in the authority of the Son, which is another way of saying that they begin to be viewed in their culture by their friends as being polytheistic, when in reality they were Trinitarian. And when this happened, their life of comfort began to change. It began to change. A commitment to Christ necessitated a certain way of life. They were no longer welcomed at the synagogue. Many of them were ostracized, not just by the culture, but even by their own families. They would have faced economic hardships. They would have faced ridicule. They would have even faced assault. And this shook them. It shook them. If they would just keep their commitments to themselves... Right, worship privately, 
worship quietly in their own homes when no one's looking, if they would just compartmentalize their public life and their worldview commitments, if they would just stop rocking the boat, everything could go back to normal for them. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Hebrews, you see how the preacher warns them about this. But in our passage, we see him comforting them. He comforts them. And how exactly does he comfort them? He tells them to suck it up. These are the comforting words of the preacher here. He says that Jesus suffered outside the gate. And he, he, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people with his own blood. In other words, Christ was sacrificed much like those types of sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament by Levitical priests out away from the people. Right? Christ who became sin, who took our sin to the altar, to the cross, was burned. Right? He was consumed by the, the fierce wrath of God so that we could go free. Right? The, the preacher props up Christ and he says to the suffering and discouraged church, and this is where it really is comforting genuinely, he says this, look to him. Look to Christ. And his encouragement to the church follows that verse, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Christ is outside the camp. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge him. The text says, look to Christ who sanctified his people with his blood. Be encouraged and suffer as he suffered. Christ endured. Right? This church was facing many accusations. They were not only just, they weren't only wildly misunderstood, but they were also being persecuted. And his encouragement to them is to continue, to keep going down that road. They have to continue in their public commitment to Christ, which necess, uh, necessitates them meeting regularly. Verse 14 speaks of a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the outworking of a profession of faith. It was their gathering that fueled their ability to consider Christ, to push one another toward persevering in the faith, and drive their ability to be ambassadors for Christ in the public square. And this morning, we're gathered here, here as Christians, as God's church, the word church meaning gathered ones or assembly, and we need to be committed to following the New Testament pattern of public commitment to Him. No matter our cultural circumstances, no matter how much we may be shamed or misunderstood or afraid, we're to be committed to Christ through our commitment to public worship. God shapes us through that. And being shaped Lord's Day by Lord's Day forms the contours of our faith and our commitment to Him the other six days of the week. Everything flows from our rhythm of coming together and celebrating every week that Christ is bodily risen from the dead and has inaugurated new creation in us. So a few takeaways for us, and then we'll pray. First is this, and this is in your worship guide, so don't fret to take it down. We must make the gathering of ourselves a top-tier priority because A, our triune God commands us to, B, he conforms us into the image of Jesus when we do. And C, he shapes our public witness for him for having assembled as Christ's body. Second, the sacrament and ordinances or ordinances are to be done in the gathering of God's assembly. We do them discerning the corporate nature of Christ's body, not as isolated individual Christians. Three, 
Singing the word is sacred, soul-nourishing, and a means to ascribe glory to our triune God and strengthen the local church. Therefore, sing loud and sing with your mind engaged and your affections warm for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Fourth, Prayer should be shaped by the Scripture in a response to hearing from God in His written Word. It is a means by which the Lord humbles us, sustains us, accomplishes His will, and keeps us from despair. Therefore, prayer is practical and it's to be prioritized in our service. Lastly, to hear the Word rightly divided is to hear God. Therefore, the preaching of the Word should be biblically sound and preached. So at Deer Park, we believe the best and normative way to do that is through expository preaching. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for this day that we've had, this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, bless us as we seek to be a people who submit our lives to you, and we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.